now because what you're saying is useful. So go ahead. Yeah, I'm catching, I'm catching the thought uh, as it sort of as it comes up or as I'm getting annoyed with myself for whatever's happening. Like if I'm trying to focus on the breath, you know, I, I sense that frustration of like, oh, I'm not there. And then I'm canceling that out and then being happy that I noticed. And that's been, you know, quite, quite powerful actually. Cause like, you know, then it really doesn't matter because as soon as I've wandered away or if I've wandered away, I'm going to be kind of pleased with myself quite soon afterwards. So that, that's been good. Um, well, something I wanted to talk about was like, so I'm doing my breathing right, and I feel like sometimes I'm slipping from like a skillful trying to be involved, like, oh, could I breathe, breathe deeper or like, could I make this more of a comfortable breath? And then it's slipping into more like, ah, I wish this was a bit longer and I wish this was a bit da 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 or whatever. And I know that's unhelpful. So I was hoping to ask, um, how can I still have that sort of like being interested with like what's going on and all that with that and, you know, wanting to sort of coax it towards a nicer state without being, um, you know, without getting into like a fault finding, like, oh, it's not, it's not a deep enough breath or it's not long enough or da, 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 not focused enough or whatever. That's an interesting thing you mentioned about fault finding. Mm -hmm. Our culture has been built on finding the faults and fixing the faults with the idea that when we fix all the faults and everything is going to be hunky-dory. Is that right? Isn't that basically the way it works? Yeah. Well, guess what? Things are already hunky-dory and nothing needs to be fixed. And so it's good that we forget about the fault finding. That in fact, when you use the word fault finding, uh, that's a very apt description of uh, problem solving. Mm -hmm. Right? Because what is a problem? A problem is something that needs to be fixed. It's some fault that needs to be fixed. And so we figure out a solution, thinking that when we get a solution for the problem, then we'll feel better. Is that the idea? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay. So, the real point then is, is why can't we feel good right now or on the way to good feelings rather than having to take time out from feeling good to go fix some problem so that we can feel good? Hmm. This is another way of thinking about the, what the Buddha talks about, the direct method. Okay, and the direct method is, imagine a triangle that you've got uh, A, B, and C, and that the normal mind is going to go from A to B, 
and then from B to C. But the direct method is to go straight from A to C, which is the, called the hypotenuse of a triangle. Now, I'm now imagine that it's kind of a, uh, uh, you're on a mountain, and that you've got to get off the mountain over to this place. And you have two routes. One is a slope that you can slide downhill like going skiing. And the other one is to jump off a cliff, crash land, get up and now walk a mile or two over to the, your destination. This is the way that normally people we think. And that's what we're talking about in the sense of, oh, I've got a problem that needs to be solved going from B, thinking that it's easy to get from B to C, when in fact it's actually easier to get from A to C without actually having to <laughs> go to B, and often B is a crash landing. Right. Um, and so that's basically another way of thinking about getting off the path is getting off the path means that we've got, we think that we've got to go do something over there off the path, and then we'll get back on the path, not recognizing that, well, wait a minute, if we stay on the path, we probably don't even have to do that over there, never mind the fact that it's <laughs> likely dangerous. So, that's so much for our meditation on... Um, fault finding, that if we would stop finding faults, especially on the inside, and where are we going to find those faults? In the past, something we've done wrong. And the marvelous point about that is nobody is really up to their own standards. Not anymore. I mean, our standards, as you're improving with your meditation, your standards are getting higher. So you're not the same person that you were way back when, but when you think about how you were way back when, you don't even pass your own standards. But guess what? You can't fix that past. You can only feel bad about it. <laughs> Better not. <laughs> and so this is one of the really good examples of staying out of the past. Because there really are no um, real issues and that the whole point of life is to stop creating unfinished business. That when we do something, we finish with it or we don't bother about it, but leaving unfinished business is normally how people live their lives. is leaving a long string of undone things that we then from time to time think that we've got to go do. But with one of noble mind, we recognize, you know, let's finish the job, let's do what needs to be done or decide that it can't be done and then leave it. Mm -hmm. Abandon it mentally rather than I'll put it off for later because that gives us ample opportunity to feel bad. So this is another way of letting go. But the important point about your question in the first place about Paticca Samuppada, that's what we've been talking about for the last seven or eight minutes as we turn the video on. What is this past stuff that we're talking about? That's the Sankara. 
And that that Sankara, according to uh, the description, was accumulated in ignorance. Mm -hmm. When we were kids, we accumulated a whole bunch of Sankara. And basically what it is, is that every kid takes lessons from an adult on how to feel bad. And so it's learned behavior. When we're little kids, we're good. We're happy. We're on top of the world. We're, you know, king of the mountain. And this plastic sword or even stick becomes a mighty weapon. Right? You can see things in the mind that these big people can't see. Well, about 80% of the time, then a young kid's going to be in a, in, a, uh, in a happy, playful world. But only about 20% of the time when he's going to be frustrated because he can't get what he wants or he's being punished for something he did. But over time, that stuff accumulates, and you can understand that we remember our traumas. Mm-hmm. more likely than to remember the good times. So this is how that whole ignorance system is built up. It's built up in ignorance in the sense that we remember the bad and forget about the good. And so when we become adults, now we've got it the other way around, that we're only spending about 20% of our time in feel good and about 80% of the time feeling bad. Until we begin Anapanasati, and now we're going to start changing that ratio again. Because we're going to intentionally remember that you can feel good without having to automatically feel bad. Because that's, in fact, how our, our, our feelings, our bad feelings, always occur. Is it that they just kind of come in and take over? We wouldn't. They are actually uninvited guests, and it wakes a whole lot of work for us to do, to be hauled around by anger or frustration or, or whatever. And anyone can see the value in being free from uh, doing what the feelings tell you to do and do and feel the way that you would want to feel. Well, that that's going to require some new Sankara that's not so stupid as it was when we were a child. We actually mm-hmm. have to practice feeling good so that now the top part of the Sankara that we're going to start uh, dealing off the top of the deck is going to be more newer experiences of joy and bliss and not so likely to be the childhood experiences of fear, anger, distress. So, so just a quick question. Does this mean that, like, gladdening the mind and Anapanasati are, like, skillful Sankaras then? Because instead of, like, our old way of reacting to whatever situation, you're, like, in the here now, breathing in a correct, deep way with the uh, with right view and right effort and et cetera? Precisely so that, in fact, Anapanasati speaks of these things as skills to be developed and where are these skills then going to be stored as they're being developed and when they're developed? That's the Sankara. We're adding that stuff onto the pile. Right. Makes, makes perfect sense. Yeah. That when we start putting new, better, more wholesome stuff on top of the pile and we don't do a whole lot of rummaging down into the bottom of the pile, 
that our new thoughts are most likely going to be remanufactured from more recent events that are sitting on top of our uh, um, pile of stuff. Okay, so that brings that, uh, that quotation that I like a lot, and that is that every one of us, each one, is a emperor of their own pile of dirt. The question is, how deeply buried into that pile of dirt that you're going to be means how close are you to living it um, kind of in the into the woeful states or living instinctually or living uh, like a stupid animal would be at the bottom. Or the real emperor, the practicer of Anapanasati, is ready to pop out of that and come sit on top of the world which is in fact just exactly the way the Buddha would think of it when they use the Pali word Lokatara, supramundane. The supramundane means being literally above the pile of dirt, the mundane. Isn't that marvelous? And that's the teaching of Anapanasati, and you're exactly right in your question, is, is that then by repeating that over and over and over again, we're making uh, a new pile of dirt or uh, an additional level. But that, that means that we're now using uh, it in, in a very wholesome way by putting wholesome foundation down now and working with that wholesome foundation that more than likely whatever thoughts we dig up and or uh, build up into place will be done with a foundation of wholesomeness. Right. Right. So that's why we practice over and over and over and over again is because we're, we're uh, replacing old bad feelings of memory into new good feelings of memory. Mm -hmm. So that when we remember how to feel, we remember how to feel good because we've been practicing a lot. So when... Uh, something touches us in a very light way. For instance, there is two kinds of consciousness within Paticca Samuppada. The third step is the consciousness that arises with the sense door. The senses are the eyes, the ears, the touch of the skin, the proprioceptive, the, uh, the smell, the taste, all of those senses, but we normally stay in sight and sound as a predominant one, and we don't spend a lot of time in sensation. And part of Anapanasati is to change that around to begin to think about and to have thoughts of the physical body and the sensations that occur through the senses, because most of the time we're lost in a thought complex. In other words, we're not really here now. We're off in the past strolling around in dangerous territory. Mm -hmm. So when we wake up to that, to recognize, oh, let's come out of dangerous territory and come to be here now. That's, uh, that's the waking up. And so what that means is now we're going to no longer have our, our sensory input as the old mental complex. Now the sensory input is going to be what's available right now in the sensory world. Hey, sorry, sorry, Damaratu, one second. Okay. Oh, okay. 
Never mind. So, right. um, it, so this would also be like, let's say, for example, I have an experience of like um, social anxiety or whatever, and like we can assume whatever, like that that's from being having experiences as a kid that made me anxious, etc. Does that mean then that when we go around experiencing like why we're focusing so much on the here now is we don't want like the sankaras to influence situations to create uh those familiar feelings of social anxiety and then by coming into the here now we're not letting the sankaras influence our perception of what's going on as much yes that in fact, this is an interesting story. While you were talking, you used the word anxiety twice, and then you used it later a third time. But in the first time that you used the word anxiety, I actually felt anxiety right there. And immediately feeling it, I took a deep breath, knowing that I could push it right back out again. And then you mentioned it a second time, and that's when the smile came, because the anxiety came back a third, a second time, but another deep breath, and out it goes. And then later at the end, you mentioned it a third time in relation to other things, and it didn't occur. So this is how anxiety can occur. You gave me anxiety by using the word anxiety. So that's, it. that's, in fact, how easy it is to pass or to catch, uh, and that uh, it's normally done at a feeling level, but that uh, it's very easy for a trigger on the outside to trigger anxiety that way. But mm -hmm. really, the problem, real problem with anxiety is, is that it also gets triggered from the inside. Right. That will have, in fact... It's hard to even figure out which came first, the chicken or the egg, or which came first, the thoughts of problem solving or the anxiety that accompanies that. Right. Did the anxiety come up first and then the thoughts trying to figure out what it was to do? Or was it the other way around that I have thoughts of, or problems that need to be solved and while thinking about those things, anxiety arose? The answer is both of those things happen, and that uh, is good for you to start seeing how that stuff happens, and that by, by being quick with it, that this is in fact being on guard, which means that we're in a state, a nice, pleasant, happy state, free from anxiety, and then somebody says the word anxiety, and now we can feel it, okay? But by feeling it, that means that we're pretty sharp, because mostly at that level, it, it people are not aware of it. That in fact, at a very low level of awareness of anxiety, that's what will kick off the kind of thoughts about what can I do to get rid of this anxiety that's not fully conscious yet. Right. Okay. So part of what our practice is, is to bring things up to a level of consciousness by paying more attention to the body on a more regular basis. Mm -hmm. 
and that we spend more and more of our time in sensory input and less and less of our time in the spinning mind. Mm-hmm. More and more of your time during the day, whenever we remember it, we just start come out of the old... Uh, it's, it's almost like that we're a student that's addicted to the university's library and all the girls are out on the lawn. <laughs> all the fun's on the outside, except that it's backwards. Uh, but in this case, that library is us just rambling around in our own tombs, rambling around in our own stacks. When we could come out of that into the sensory awareness to be here now in the full-blown world. So this is an important quality of how we're going to operate with these senses because we want to wake wake up one of them and then put the other one to proper use so that it doesn't just go bounding around but rather that it comes along to play the game that we're playing to be here now. Mm-hmm. All right, which means now we're going to have two kinds of thoughts, wholesome thoughts as opposed to the unwholesome thoughts. And the unwholesome thoughts would be the kind that would either uh, induce anxiety or that it would try to figure out what anxiety was to where the right thing to do is to see the anxiety directly and take a deep breath saying, wow, I caught you. I can see that anxiety. Okay. So this is uh, what we're doing here is we're actually beginning to change the input of what we're going to have to our perceptional system. Because normally the way that the mind works is this sixth sense door that keeps uh, the, perpe- the perception in a percep- perpetual motion. Mm-hmm. That we keep thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking when there's no real reason to. That if we would pay attention to what's going on in the here now and have that as our input to the perception system, then we would understand things a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. But the perception system what is in Pali the Nama Rupa. That perceptional system always uses stuff out of the Sankara. So the more wholesome stuff we have at the top of the base of Sankara, the more likely something wholesome is going to be understood. And that understanding that we're talking about now in the Pali is called Salayatana. Mm-hmm. The example of that would be I see the tree the basic tree actually takes only a little bit of perception. But when I say things like, I see what you mean, that means that I've had to perceive it, I've had to muck around in my database, I've had to come to figure things out to present now something that I can have that will impact me. The internal representation. Okay. Okay. And this, this is how we normally do concepts, that the concepts that I give is only just a, a set of words. But mm-hmm. I'm actually building kind of a mental image or a picture of a concept mm-hmm. by doing this, so that you can begin to understand, oh, exactly, yes, there is a mental imagery that actually is a combination of all the sense bases, including the proprioceptic that's built into it, and that that's what I have as my as my mental understanding 
of uh, of what's going on or of what we're talking about or whatever, like this right. conversation. Our understanding of what's going on in the moment, and it has a lot to do with our, our Sankara. An example of that is someone can talk to Donald Trump about a particular issue, and all they can think about is how that issue affects him. And because of that, he's going to miss the whole point of what somebody is, is talking about. Right. Like, it's not a big deal that those people die because they're not my voters. So that's the way that uh, uh, that, that Sankara can be set up. So that our, the way that we perceive things is completely different depending upon each individual. And right. that uh, the understanding then is that the closer that, that, that our, per, our perceived outcome, that salayatana, that internal consciousness, the closer it is to actual reality, then the less suffering that we will do. Mm-hmm. Because in general, the less... Um, Sorry, Damaratu, can I just pull... Can I just re, uh, rewind a bit? I wanted to bring up the Nama Rupa thing because there's five links in Nama Rupa uh, and I wanted to just, because we're mostly talking about the Sankara, how the Sankaras are affecting like what we're perceiving of the situation. Would, what would the, how would the other items in the um, Nama Rupa affect it? Because I know there's Vedana, um, intention or chaitana and then um something else so like perception all right and i'll use the example of ocr yep do you know ocr optical character recognition it's when you can take a picture of text or a book put it through the scanner and have that scanned image turned into text that can then be added subtracted manipulated in Microsoft Word, etc., like that. Hmm? Not an image anymore. It is actually text. Yeah, it's been converted and recognized and stuff. Recognized is exactly the right word. Let's go with that. Optical character recognition. It's, It's recognizing an optical character, and by recognizing it as an optical character, we convert it into a text character, an internal character, possibly an ASCII code, or maybe EPSIDIC, mm-hmm. or binary coded decimal. There's a lot of different coding techniques in the binary system, but uh, ASCII is the one that's used on the PC. So uh, that optical character is then converted through a piece of software, but that software has... Um, it has two jobs to do. One is to isolate the text itself and to do some page formatting. But the original kind of OCR did not care about page formatting at all. All it cared about was let's find every character and convert it into a text character. So that part of the uh, system needs a database of fonts. Mm-hmm. The more, in other words, this OCR is not going to be able to do anything with Chinese characters if it doesn't have a Chinese font registry. Mm-hmm. Also, it's better if you have uh, the various kind of fonts, like uh, 
uh, a script font versus uh, uh, a Times Roman or um, a courier font, many different kinds of fonts, and that this software has to be sharp enough to know the difference between this. Let me draw something on the screen for you. There is this character, mm -hmm. and then there is this character. Right, infinity and eight. You have to be able to right. recognize it. Right, and you can see that they're very similar. There's just a rotational angle distinction mm -hmm. in there. Uh, so the, the software has to be sharp enough to know that kind of thing so that it reduces its error rate. And then mm -hmm. at the end of it, it will also generally have at least a spell checker to try to recreate, uh, to, uh, to fix some of the errors. Okay. Okay. That OCR piece of software is uh, the computer's uh, version of human perception. That's the job it does, is that it takes a visual image and turns it into something that can be uh, dealt with, mm -hmm. can be understood, it can be converted into some internal language that can be stored or used as a piece of information. They haven't really gotten down to that level with their neuroscience yet, but they'll dig. <laughs> we don't quite know the language of the brain, but we do know that it has this capability, not only of OCR, because every time you read a book, you have to do that. <laughs> right? If you didn't know how to, how do you learn how to read? Well, you had to learn a lot of different fonts. So all of that data is stored in there. So in that respect, you've got a much more sophisticated OCR mechanism inside the human brain because we operate on a whole lot of range of uh, pieces of information other than just text. <laughs> to where we can manipulate text so that we can read, but most of us don't have the Chinese font stored in the brain. So therefore, we do not read Chinese. So now that you can understand, this is exactly how the human mind works, so that if we don't have certain emotions plugged in and playable, then that means that that individual is probably not going to be using that emotion very much. And that some emotions are worth massaging and getting them strong, and other feelings are worth putting them down that they're too strong and too noisy. Mm -hmm. And that we can learn to manipulate our feelings, learn to control the feelings so that you can begin to feel the way that you want to feel. Why? Because of the way that we're actually beginning to manage the Sankara. We're actually able to manage this database so that our perception winds up joyful. Mm -hmm. So this okay, is one so of the reasons why we, we practice over and over and over again to come into a state of joy so that we then are storing that joy as a resource for later. So that you'll have, uh, let us say, more options about how to feel. And so sympathetic joy compassion, to be able to see others correctly. This is all skills that are worth developing, and when I talk about it as a skill, that means we're heaping something new 
onto that Sankara base. Mm-hmm. We're adding things to it. Many of the new things that we're putting on are not so ignorant. Now they're pretty wise things to put in there. But in the beginning, it was all based in ignorance. That's um, it's helpful you mentioned this because I wanted to bring up something that has happened or I've noticed a couple times is how like you. The joy can be quite mental, while while you might not necessarily be super physically comfortable. Like um, happened happened the other night. I was in bed and I was feeling pretty uncomfortable, uh, a bit sore or whatever for whatever reason. And I just kept saying like, okay, everything's perfect just as it is. And like I was still feeling like some aches and pains and stuff. But then it was like there was. There's like, you know, I could feel my physical body and then like as if it's as if there was like another layer behind it where I was like, oh, then no, this is still like, this is fine. This is still, you know, and it wasn't like a big bunch of joy, like a party, but it was like, you know, kind of like a thing of contentment behind the physical feeling. Mm-hmm. And then that happened again a few days ago where I was just breathing out breathing and I remember like I was like oh my posture is a bit off because I was doing the qigong standing and I was then I remember I caught myself before I went off onto like oh what am I how do I fix my le- fix my legs to get the blah 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 and then when I came back like I still felt a bit uncomfortable but then it was that similar thing of like it was that discomfort there but then as if there was like another layer of where it was like this is nice you know and it or it's like yeah this is cool like this is fine and i just was yeah i guess i was just wondering because i've always um i've ima- always imagined it to be more like really bodily and like all f- like really physical and these times i felt you know it was really like just kind of that distance between it and then what was going on with my, like, you know, bodily pain and stuff. Okay. I would recommend in all cases that we, whatever we're doing when we begin, when we start, we start by making the body comfortable. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you're sitting down for meditation or whatever the situation that you're in, we want to check to make sure that the body is comfortable right now. We want to start in a state of comfort from the very beginning. And that if the body gets uncomfortable, then we need to do something about that. And that, uh, that always has to do with an inspection. So the first thing that we do when the body becomes uncomfortable is we inspect to see what's going on. It could be a mosquito that's biting. It could be Mm -hmm. just a random itch. It could be a snake that's latched on. It's a good idea to take a look at what's going on. Mm -hmm. Once we see what's going on, then we can make the choice about how am I going to handle this 
always through wisdom because the wisdom is the waking up to see what's going on. All right. So um, one of the ways of handling it is by changing the body's posture. For instance, the legs have gone to sleep. That's not a good place for the legs to be. So it's better to do something to get the circulation going again and then sit back down. Oftentimes, you're standing up and then sitting back down. Now, I know the Goenka folks, they like that uh, stressing their legs out and letting the body go to sleep and whatnot. But I don't think that it's actually recommended by medical science, and I would rather listen to what the doctors say. And at at Watso and Mo, that was one of the things that would be recommended is to stand up. It's okay to stand up in the meditation hall and then sit back down. Also, if that doesn't do it, then going and, and doing walking meditation. So that would take care of the deep muscle pains and, and things like that. And you could also see that with the back. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes the back gets in pain because we're not sitting up straight. So if we sit up straight with the intention of breathing with, a, with an upright posture, often the back pain will go away. Especially if it's new. If it gets built and then we're not watching it and it gets too much and now we've got to deal with it, it might be better to stand up and walk for a little while to take mm-hmm. the pressure off of the back, get some freedom, move around, and then come back and sit down. There is no reason to put the body into unnecessary pain. Okay. Okay. So now there's the other kind of pain, which is kind of like a sensation that's upon the body, and we take a look at that sensation with the uh, the goal is I can handle that. I don't have to scratch that mosquito bite. Yeah. I've got a strong mind. My mind is much stronger than the sensations of that mosquito bite, or whether it's a... Uh, um, a place on the body would be uh, just a tight sensation or whatever, and we don't like it. The important thing is to look at the and make the distinction between what is the sensation itself and how do I feel about that sensation. Because often we can begin to uh, make that disconnection right there. I am not the pain. I am not the sensation. It's just a sensation, and it's just a feeling of not liking it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we allow the body to be just a place on the body, just a sensation that we're not scratching, and we feel really good and strong that we can just sit here and not scratch that thing. Right. All right, so now we're building right attitude. We're actually building up a skill, but... Uh, we have to make that initial investigation to figure out, do I really need to do something about this, or can I take care of it with my mind without moving? Right. That's the way um, to handle but the sensations, and that takes wisdom, and it takes some waking up. Just while you're talking, something flash, uh, came across my mind. You know, like, say... If we had decided, you know, we're going to sit in that kind of, all right, this is this is just like whatever, a little bit of tightness in my leg or whatever, and you decided to just sit through it without getting, without letting it make you get up and do something, 
would that be enough to sort of trigger the the PT because you've made a decision, like you've got you set your intention to avoid getting up or avoid letting the leg pain make you do an action, and then like it's like success and then satisfaction. So the success of doing what we set out to do, yeah, could be like PT. Okay, exactly, exactly. So, in fact. The, the strength of the mind is an important quality. Mm-hmm. The strength of mind, when uh, the, the Buddha talks about it in the sense that this is the first knowledge, the first step onto the noble path, is when we have uh, the, the attitude that no matter how obstructed the mind gets, I can come back to the here now, and see things the way that they really are. Okay, so now let's apply that to an itch on the arm or on the forehead or something like that. And that itch is there and it's intense. And we say, never mind that itch, I'm stronger than it is, or that I'm just going to sit here with it, knowing that I can do this that that itch is not going to be such an obstruction to me that I have to move my hand to go scratch it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So okay. I can just sit here with that itch and observe it, or I can watch it, or I can ignore it, but I am not going to react to it. And I'm going to keep watching on it just enough to make sure that I'm not going to let it take over the mind, or take over the hand at least. The scratch. All right. So that builds a, an enormous amount of confidence when we begin to see that no matter what happens, I can handle this. That's an important point. Think about it. In fact, mm-hmm. it's no so important. Happens. No matter what happens, I can handle this. Even my own death, I can handle it. All right. Someday it's going to come get me, and I can do it. So, with that knowledge, um, this is also part of the way that Zen talks, in the sense that you're already enlightened, Mm -hmm. which means you're already capable of not scratching that itch. You have that ability within you already to just sit here and feel good about not scratching that itch. You're enlightened already. You've got it within you. You've got that hunk in there, and that you can put it to work. Another way that uh, uh, the Sufis, I think, would say this is that you are God. Everybody, if we uh, we can use the analogy of each one of us as an emperor of our own pile of dirt, we can take that upstairs just an inch or two and say that you are God. You could do, I mean, you are in fact, who else is going to be your God if it's not going to be you? That you're in charge of your life. Are you going to let the instincts run it? Are you going to manage your own life? And the answer to that is, heck yeah, I can run my life. I'm the God here. Now, the important point about this is that a lot of people, when we talk about it at this level, they have the idea, well, I'm not really ready for that, or I'm not worthy of it. 
Do you have any of that kind of feeling? Of, wow, that's too much, or I'm not ready for that. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Or like, oh, I don't yeah. know how, or how long I can do that for, or, you know. Right, or how good can I feel? I don't know how good I can feel, but I dare not try. Lest I be disappointed because I'm not up to my own standards. No. Right? But the answer is, oh, yes, you are up to your own standards. But somewhere or another, we needed permission to go to our own highest level. And so I give you that permission. It's okay that you go and feel as good as you want to feel. You can play with it and experiment it with it because there's nobody else that's going to give you permission other than you. And all you need is the power, and you're developing that with the skills that we're developing. Mm -hmm. And so that permission is all you need. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah. And a lot of we get, yeah, we don't give ourselves permission to feel good. We say, oh, I'm supposed to feel good. I'm supposed to do Anapanasati. And then we do it under orders rather than under the enjoyment. Mm -hmm. We know you really can feel good. Even if you feel that anxiety. And in fact, that's the best time to find that anxiety is when you feel really good. And oh, there it goes. So I can grab that stuff and pull it right out in one breath. So that's, so that's the way. Give yourself permission to be satisfied, to be on top of your own pile of dirt, to be the emperor of your own life. Because that's the really skill developed. That's the skill of pity, of knowing that you can do this. Okay. Okay. That's how we do it with the body, but we can do that with everything. The anxiety, anger, all of the feelings, you're the boss, and you can feel the way that you want to feel. The important thing that we have to develop every time is sati. Sati is always required. Because if you don't remember to feel good, you're going to go right back into the sewer again. taking a nosedive into the sewer. We don't need to do that. We can remember, I don't have to go over that ledge. Do you, uh, something I've wondered sometimes, do, could this be like suppressing emotions sometimes though? Like if you, if you are That's feeling an like- That's an interesting a... question. And the answer to that is hot dog, yes it is. Let's do just that. And I know that I'm going to get a big reaction from some quarters, but uh, this is something, this is almost like a myth that got perpetuated in psychology. Back in the 1970s, they were all into doing this with encounter groups and getting the, uh, the anger out and uh, uh, having your mom sit in a chair while you curse her out, you know, the, uh, the image of the empty chair, yep. the Fritz Perls method. 
and so tell granny off or beat the pillow, all of that kind of stuff, led into an industry of batons and uh, boxing gloves, all designed for uh, therapy sessions. And after a few years, that whole business went right out of business. They found out that's not the right way to do it, and it was all predicated on don't suppress emotions. Right. So these guys would beat the pillow when they got in the therapy session, then they'd go home and beat on their wife. Jeez. <laughs> so suppression, we got to look at it, all right? So if I'm sitting here and something in the house happens and I hear it and I don't like it, so I become angry, if I stand up and go into the other room and start ask, uh, talking in angry tone of voice, something will happen in that direction. Mm -hmm. But there is also the possibility, like you were talking about, they asking you, oh, well, if I shut up, if I get angry and sit here in a chair, then I'll fume. Mm -hmm. That's the suppression. I'll think about it and won't act and I'll worry about it and I won't act and blah, 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 okay? And then there is the Buddhist method of checking the anger. Say, aha, I see you, anger. Out you go. And now I'm going to sit here and feel good. Where's the anger to suppress? It's gone. Never, in fact, it never got big enough that it needed to be suppressed. Right. And so it loses, it loses its energy or its weight through lack of use. So just as we're flexing our uh, happy muscle, we're also intentionally not exercising our anger muscle. And so the anger muscle gets weaker and weaker through disuse. So I wouldn't call it suppression. I would call it... <laughs> I would call it training to train the mind. So that we begin to feel the way that we want to feel, rather than uh, uh, suppressing bad feelings. Because suppressing bad feelings is not a particularly enjoyable, satisfactory place to be, is it? <laughs> nope. <laughs> and so we actually do have to get out of that, and we have to actually have permission to actually enjoy the moment. You say, well, I really feel good now that I don't have to be angry. Or, well, I can really feel good. The, yeah, my leg hurts a little bit. Let me stretch the leg out. And, wow, doesn't it feel good now? Get some circulation going in there. And so we wind up always being a winner. We wind up always being the champion. Mm -hmm. We wind up always developing the habit of, I can do this. I'm successful at it. That it's only a little task to do. And I can do this job. And what is that job to do? Is to come out of suffering, to come out of the hindrances, to see the hindrances, and to come out of them. So this is basically why Patita Samupada is so valuable to understand how the mind works. And we've only been talking about the past uh, uh, hour or nearly an hour on just the first part of Patita Samupada. The really damaging, desperate stuff happens later. So like we're talking about a, like the long-term value of uh, changing the Sankara base. Because in the ordinary mind, the perceptions uh, that have 
bad feelings involved with them then give us mental images or our understanding. Our movie has more pain in it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that we change the soundtrack from a, from a happy soundtrack uh, into a misery soundtrack. And we do that um, so that we um, wind up in bad feelings. And here's how we do that. That if we are ignorant at this point of contact, when these, when these uh, images arise, then there's going to be some feelings in there. Mm-hmm. The feeling is either going to be, I like it, I don't like it, or it's going to be the feeling of, I, know, I don't know whether I like it or not. Now, some people think of that third feeling as uh, neither uh, pleasant nor unpleasant, and they say, oh, it's a nothing feeling. The answer is no, nothing feelings are nothing. They're no feeling. We're talking about a real feeling, and the real feeling is basically uh, confusion about whether this is safe or not, whether I like it or not, whether it's dangerous or whether it's beneficial. And we become Does that confused. Mean- does that mean hindrances come come through at like the at the level of Vedana or like afterwards? Because if you feel like if you don't like it, obviously that becomes ill will or aversion. And then if you like it, comes like um, clinging or craving and stuff. And then if you're if it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant or confusion, that like becomes doubt or something. Exactly so. So we can say that that the hindrances in the mind that is clouding our perception also clouds our feelings, and that then the feelings will continue on. In fact, there is the doubt, and if the doubt is there that gives rise to this confused feeling, then that means more perception trying to figure it out, always coming back with more confused feeling. The confused feeling can wind up in doubt. And it can go all the way to fear, and sometimes it can go down to fear very quickly. Mm-hmm. So fear is at the bottom of it. Doubt is above that, and above that is this confused feeling. I don't know whether I like it or not. So if that's the way that it goes, let's chase that down, because normally I use, let's, let's go with the liking feeling first, because the feeling of I like it, ignorantly will lead to the feeling, I want it. Mm-hmm. The want. I like, I want. Or if I don't like it, I want to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Or the confused feeling, I don't know whether I like it or not like it. Let me figure out whether I like it or don't like it. But while I'm figuring out, I'm confused and I am fearful. And that the less understanding I have about it, uh, or the more difficult it is to figure out, then the more it becomes unlikable in the sense of fear-based. It must be dangerous. Mm-hmm. It must be dangerous. It must be scary. So I don't like it will then lead to anger. I like it will lead to wanting things we don't have or greed. And I don't, and this ignorant feeling, I don't know whether I like it or not, will lead into doubt and fear. Which basically means now that there are four modes of clinging. Let's look at the mode of clinging that has to do then with I want it. 
and that leads to the concept of the hungry ghost, the ghost that, that wants there uh, in the uh, the movies. Um, uh, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean, one of the scenes was when they all the uh, uh, pirates, the dead ones uh, in the moonlight, were getting drunk. But while they were drinking the alcohol, it would barge through the bones onto the ground and they could never get any value out of the, uh, the, the drinking. And I said, this guy who, read, who did this um, script, he had heard about the hungry ghost because that's what he was mimicking there is the dead who cannot get any satisfaction at all. Except that it's not the dead, it's every one of us who want things that we don't have. It's almost like trying to live our lives through a soda straw. <laughs> all right? And I've tried to suck a uh, Mercedes through that soda straw. <laughs> you get the idea. Okay, so this is what gives I the idea that life sucks. Life sucks mm -hmm. because we suck. If we had stopped mm -hmm. sucking on things, then life wouldn't suck so much. If we had stopped wanting things and just be satisfied with the way things are, is what we're getting at here. Life only sucks because we're the one who's doing the sucking. If we'd stopped sucking on things, wanting things we don't have, then we'd be, okay, this is good enough. Also, you can see exactly how that works with anger, that we don't like something, we want to try to get rid of it, we take action, our anger is there, and that's just a form of hell, of being hot. Also, you can see anxiety is another form of hell, in the sense that I'm in a state and I don't like it and I can't get out. So it's almost like a trap, a trap in hell. So these are the woeful states that come, and that's suffering. And the whole idea of rebirth is, is that we as an individual, because of our ignorant feelings, wind up being reborn in this animal world, or this hell world, or this uh, world of hungry ghosts, or this world of fear. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that the one that I find most interesting is the, uh, the world of the animals, because humans have been trained as animals from childhood. Now here's how we train an animal. We tell the animal, or, or force the animal to understand, this is his job, and he'd better do it. And if he doesn't do it, he's going to get kicked, and if he does do it, he may get a treat, eventually, occasionally. Okay, and so my example of this, I saw in India, this donkey that was running around a 30-foot circle uh, with a pole attached to his back, and the other end of it was on a, um, a stone... Um, mill and as the donkey walked around and the millstone turned around the man would throw sugarcane in and then out at the bottom of it would come sugarcane juice which he sold to the people do you think that donkey ever got any sugarcane juice probably not all right let's put that back in the human world and now we get the kid off the floor and says sit down in that desk you learn something. You learn your ABCs. Why do I have to learn the ABCs? Never mind, you do it. We'll tell you later what the value. You got to learn to read, kid. You got to learn to read. Okay? And that's how they get it started. They also do things like go clean your room. I don't want to clean my room. You go clean your room. Why? Because I told you to go clean your room. You go clean your room. In other words, we're treating our children like animals without giving them the respect of knowing why they have to do things. Mm -hmm. 
and you wind up taking a job and you don't even know why you're taking that job. You go through all these years of school. Why? So you can go through more school. Why? So you can graduate. Why? So you can get a job. Why? So I can get a house. Why? So I can get a trophy wife. Right? But where's the real reward? When do we ever wind up feeling good? The answer is we've always been going from A to B. And we never went to C. Mm -hmm. It's time we start going to C directly. Just sit down and feel good. Because you're not ever going to get to feel good from all the doing that you were trained to do. And so this is basically the entire Paticca Samuppada is, is that the hell world that we wind up with, that's the real dukkha. And the real dukkha is because we're bound to repeat it over and over and over and over and over again. That we keep getting reborn as that animal. Over Every time we get up and go to work, we're reborn as that animal. Every time that we uh, get angry, we're born in hell. Every time that we um, want something that we don't have, we wind up being um, a hungry ghost. And every time that we're all dressed up, but we're too afraid to go out, that's the assurers. They're the, they're the mystical warriors who are all dressed up for battle, but they are afraid to go to battle. You've heard this expression, all dressed up and no place to go. Or like the little kid who's got to walk out on stage and he becomes petrified. He knows his lines up and down. He's practiced them for days or weeks, and, but now it's time to go out on stage and... <laughs> and that's, that's being reborn as an Asura. We're petrified with fear. We don't know what to do. And so these are, these are the states that are quite woeful and that are based upon the four modes of clinging. But if we're wise at the point of contact, then we can interrupt that. But if we're also wisely adding new good things to the Sankara, then we're going to wind up over time getting a much better uh, image of the world or a much better um, uh, consciousness of the world or a much better internal representation of the world because it's much closer to reality now than it used to be. And so we wind up naturally not suffering so much. So what are the four modes of Clinging? I'm sorry, what? What are the four modes of clinging? What are the four what? Modes of clinging. The four modes of clinging are clinging to the self. That's the fear. That's the assurance when we get frozen with fear. There is the procreation instinct or our, our uh, clinging to sensual world, materialism, and that's the hungry ghost, wanting things we don't have. So to like, to the world, to worldly things? Worldly things. Mm -hmm. House, car, home, axe, condom, cell phone. Those kind of things. 
the kind of things that we have to make us feel good and feel secure. Mm-hmm. And the next two? And that's why I listed condoms, is because those things are to make people feel secure. <laughs> All right, so the next one then is going to be uh, clinging to the way things are supposed to be done. This is called Sila Bhatta Paramatra, and you can see that it is the herding instinct or the nesting instinct. And it's attachments to the way things should be done, the Sila Bhatta Paramasa. So whenever you find yourself in a dialogue between the parent and the child in your head, it's always the parent saying, you should do this, or this is how it should be done, or why don't you do this, or what's this going on here? All the shouldas, wouldas, and couldas, and all of that kind of stuff come out of this instinctual behavior that is in the, uh, uh, the mammal world is the herding instinct. But actually, even fish, primitive fish, as brain-dead as fish are, they can school together for protection. But in fact, it was just recently I saw an, uh, it where the, the guy was talking about being off the coast of this uh, lovely island, and that they're looking at all the schools of fish, and around the school of fish are the sharks. That's why the fish are schooled. Is because sharks are out there. All right. Well, the same reason why the wildebeest are herding together is because the lions are out there, and why do humans live in in cities is because there's a jungle out there. Well, this herding instinct or this uh, uh, nesting instinct comes with a set of hierarchies and rules. There's always a, a leader of the crowd which says, you do it my way or you have to leave my nest. This is my house. And you see that between father and son and father and daughter almost every uh, generation. You either do it my way or out you go. That's, and so that's part of our Silabhata Paramasa. The, la the last one, which is the instinct that gives rise to the clinging to views is the clinging of the view of we are better than you are. Mm -hmm. It's the cling of uh, this is our tribe and I know my tribe. That tribe over there, I don't know them. That means that the feeling of confusion arises and therefore I don't know them, I don't like them, I'm confused about them, they must be dangerous, I have full doubts about them, and why are they brown color when I'm white? There's where your racism comes from, precisely it's clinging to the views that are instinctual there in the sense of territory except that now the territory defines us, or we define ourselves as to what do we cling to that gives us an identity. For instance, am I an Australian? Am I a wildebeest? Am I a Thai? Am I a Democrat? Am I a Republican? Am I a Christian? Okay. Am I a Hindu? So all religion affiliations, all um, uh, political affiliations, national affiliations are only the big ones. 
But what about book clubs and all of the kind of things? My sport team. I follow that sport team, therefore it's my sport team. But if I say it's my sport team, while I walk into the locker room, they'll throw me out. They'll say, no, it is not your sport team at all. <laughs> but this is how we identify with things, by making it mine. The problem is everything that we identify with is out in the outside world, and it is uncontrollable. So the Democrats might have a good election or a bad election, and however how the Democrats do it, I feel that way, because I'm a Democrat. So if the Democrats fall down and do badly, I feel bad. If I'm a Republican and they fall down, I feel bad. If I'm a Christian and they fall down, I feel bad. You see how that goes, okay? So everything that you identify with is going to give you a source of bad feeling. It's better not to identify with anything. That's one of the four modes of clinging, is clinging to, I think I am this or that. And we don't quite know what we are yet. All I know is I am not my past, I am not my personality. And so this is actually um, uh, the understanding then of these four modes of clinging show us the four modes of how we actually exist in the world because it leads to these four woeful states. And they're all instinctual. This is all instinctual behavior, which means it's buried into our genes and then exercised in some fairly unsophisticated ways throughout childhood. So we've got, got a task on our hands. The question is, can you, can you meet it? Can you, are you up to the task? The answer is darn right we are. I can change. I'm, 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 the, I'm the emperor here. <laughs> I'm the boss. I'm, I'm the god of this planet. And so that's where the attitude comes in. I can do this over and over and over again, build up new Sankara. Build up new, useful, wholesome uh, thoughts. All right. Um, I had better get going. Um, thanks for that, though. This is all quite helpful. And the, refre the refresher of Prestige uh, Summer Part was helpful, very helpful. Well, it's all part of the package. I'm glad that we had this opportunity to talk about it. Is it's actually the, what we're practicing. The teacher Samapada is not some sort of um, uh, uh, philosophical way of looking at it. It's rather it's very practical. Right. So it's good to see you again. It's been a while. Good to see you again too, Damaratu. All right. Uh, well. If you don't mind, we'll put this one on the internet. Yeah, that's all good. No problem. Okay. All right. No problem. See ya. Okay. Ashley, we'll see you later. Yep. See you soon. Bye-bye.